Welcome to the Neuropathy Commons podcast. My name is Alex Chemesian, your host for this podcast. I'm a resident physician in the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Program at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. I'm also a researcher dedicated to understanding neuropathy and working towards finding better treatments for patients. I'm joined today by our expert guest and founder of Neuropathy Commons, Dr. Anne Louise Oaklander. Dr. Oaklander, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Well, I'm really excited uh, about this episode because we're going to tell the world about Neuropathy Commons and also talk about probably one of the topics that's on everybody's mind right now, which is COVID-19. So first, I want to talk about Neuropathy Commons. You are the founder of this, and I want to tell our audience, what is Neuropathy Commons? Neuropathy Commons is a web community that offers free, we hope, unbiased, factual information to patients. It takes no commercial funding. It is currently funded by research grants from the National Institutes of Health and the nonprofit Mayday Foundation. The editorial group is independent and we get to talk about what we think is in the patient's best interest. Sounds great. So how can patients in particular engage with Neuropathy Commons? Most patients engage with Neuropathy Commons from their computer. It's very visible online by searching under Neuropathy Commons or even my name. It's mm -hmm. also available on the cell phone. One of the projects they're working on this summer is to make our cell phone version more robust. The internet version that you see from your computer has gotten quite sophisticated. Mm. And I believe that Neuropathy Commons is now one of the most viewed websites that offers information about neuropathy. Right. Yeah, it's definitely serving a need for patients with neuropathy because as you said, there's not a whole lot of information, especially of the quality that is on the Neuropathy Commons website, all in one place. What do you see as the future of Neuropathy Commons? What do you hope for it to do and become in the near term and maybe in the long term? My hope is to get others involved, and I'm very grateful uh, for your efforts in doing so by bringing podcasts to the program. We want to include the perspectives of others, and we want to focus on topics that are important to them. One of the things we try and do is invite not only other experts to participate, but also to include patient perspectives and to link up with patient organizations and to offer views to other patients. I'm really excited for everything that Neuropathy Commons does, but this podcast in particular, uh, because I think we'll be able to reach more people with neuropathy and spread the information, as you said, from all kinds of experts and patient advocacy groups and others to bring better understanding about this disease and help people get connected with all the resources that are available to people with neuropathy that you've compiled on the site. So moving to our topic du jour, COVID-19. It's on everyone's mind. We're wearing masks. Life has changed a lot in the last few months. But something that is not really at the forefront of the common conversation is the effect of COVID-19 on patients with neuropathy in particular. And so I wanted to get your take on 
what does COVID-19 mean for patients with neuropathy? At this point, it means the same thing to neuropathy patients as it means to everybody else, which is what's my risk and what do I need to be worried about and yeah. what do I not need to be worried about? And I think every one of us, including yours truly, are asking themselves the same question. And everyone is looking at their own situation, their own living situation, their own health situation, and trying to figure out what they can do to minimize their risk and mm. how to react appropriately. I think it's great to be able to address specific concerns related to neuropathy. And indeed, many of my patients are asking me these questions. But I have to start out by saying that at this point, there's more we don't know than that we do know. We are literally just months into this devastating epidemic. And to collect really good quality, scientific, factually accurate information, as we all strive to do, requires months and years of work. So I lead with the caveat that whatever we say now is based on the best information we have at hand, and almost certainly it will be changing. Does having neuropathy increase one's risk of COVID? That's a great question, and there's nothing in the published literature so far to suggest that it does. Epidemiologists have been looking at large cohorts of patients who are hospitalized or interact with the healthcare system to find out what increases their risk, and there are maybe half a dozen factors that do seem to be robust epidemiologic links. Some of them are demographic, like age, and some of them are specific health conditions. However, neuropathy has not been linked to increased risk for COVID that I know of. However, I think the real problem is that people haven't been able to get down to that level of granularity. In other words, no one has actually been capturing neuropathy when they've done these studies. So they've been looking at the variables that they can quickly capture information on, of which the easiest are patients' demographics. And then the second level is specific chronic diseases that always appear on your record, such as diabetes, hypertension. But I haven't seen that anyone is systematically recording whether patients even have peripheral neuropathy or not. And as we know, peripheral neuropathy is not one condition, but it's a whole bunch of them. So that takes me to a related question. Our audience might not know, but you're one of the leading neuropathy researchers in the world, particularly for painful neuropathies. What would you like to see the research community do regarding COVID and its potential interaction with neuropathy? What kind of information would you like to see? And what kind of studies do you think need to be done for us to have some definitive answers to these questions? That's a great question. And it's very important that patients understand that the research is only as good as the patient participation. So all that we do and all that we can offer to patients relies on their willingness to collaborate with us because all we do is analyze the information that you are kind enough to share with us. What 
I'm trying to do, and insofar as I know the other neurology groups are doing, is we are all organizing to share information and to offer the best available metrics that we have to be used to collect information in a systematic way. You can't even begin to do research unless you have common agreed upon metrics and you're gonna collect the same metrics from different patients. My group has already been involved and is accelerating involvement thanks to federal NIH funding to developing and improving standardized metrics for painful sensory and rare neuropathies. And when we do, we will make them available to others to help advance research. You'd also like to use the Neuropathy Commons website as a way of connecting directly with patients. Relying on doctors or formal funded studies is a great way to do research, but it just takes so long to go through the process. So we hope to develop ways of connecting with patients directly. We do have certain surveys that patients can do to give us information about symptoms and the ethical review board at Mass General has reviewed the questions we're asking and determined they're appropriate to ask. And patients can give consent to participate in research online. Where can they find this? All on the Neuropathy Commons website? Yes. Again, this is something under development, so they're mm -hmm. not going to find that information there today. We're reacting to the events of today by developing mm -hmm. these resources. So I would say check in with Neuropathy Commons and also help other investigators by participating in their online and in-hospital research. We talked about the risks of having neuropathy and COVID. And, and as, as you said earlier, we don't really know that there's any specific risk to people with neuropathy beyond what anyone else would have. But do we know whether COVID can cause any kind of neuropathy? That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? So one big question is, does having neuropathy increase my risk for COVID? And the other is, does having COVID increase my risk for neuropathy? And I think mm -hmm. there's a little bit of information emerging, but again, it's really at a beginning. Here's what I know. Substantial numbers of patients do report neurologic complications after COVID. And a paper was published in April in JAMA, reviewing hospitalized patients from Wuhan, and it showed that a little over a third of them did end up with neurologic problems as part of serious COVID illnesses. However, most of them were not neuropathy. They were neurologic complications of problems in other systems. Many of them were vascular problems, whether they were little strokes or related to problems with blood clotting. Also, a lot of patients, of course, all in the hospital developed problems in thinking and they became delirious or had cognitive problems. Again, how much of that reflects direct COVID infection into the brain versus nonspecific effects of being so ill, being oxygen deprived, nutrient deprived, being in an ICU setting remains to be sorted out. The one condition that I have seen some links beginning to be reported is with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Alex, if you wanted to give our audience a brief description of GBS. Sure. So Guillain-Barre syndrome is a neuropathy that affects both the motor and the sensory fibers. It typically presents after some kind of infection 
First, you have pain distally that travels centrally. So an ascending paralysis as well, where you have motor weakness that goes from your feet up to your core. And for many patients, it does resolve, especially when there's the assistance of immunomodulatory therapy, but it's classically this neuropathy that happens after an infection. That's right. In many patients with GBS, we don't actually know why they get it. It is an autoimmune illness, and you are right that infections are a major trigger of autoimmunity, including autoimmune neuropathies. There's several different types of autoimmune neuropathies, but Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, is probably the one that's best known to the public. And I think that GBS is going to be the one that's going to get picked up first and studied first in COVID because it is such a dramatic acute illness. It yes. happens typically rapidly after an infection, so it's the one that it's most easy to be confident that it's related to the infection. Yes. As of today, and so far as I know, I've seen two publications that temporally associate, meaning link in time, Guillain-Barre syndrome and COVID illnesses, one in China and one in the U.S. But I have to caution that temporarily associating, linking in time to medical problems does not in any way, shape, or form mean that the one caused the other. It means it's possible that the one caused the other. So I think this opens the door to the possibility. And certainly, I think we would both agree that it makes sense that it's plausible that some patients might have neuropathy after COVID, but there's really no proof as of yet. Yeah, time will tell. You know, it's interesting what you noted about the vascular complications in that JAMA paper. A subset of neuropathies are caused by inflammation of the vessels. So it's not inconceivable that a similar process might be happening in the peripheral nervous system as opposed to the central nervous system. And with more people getting COVID, and as we characterize these patients better, we may see that there is perhaps a peripheral analog of what was described in the Wuhan paper in JAMA, where we maybe see like a vasculitic type neuropathy in patients with COVID. Yeah, I agree. I think I myself, as of today, can think of four potential ways that there might be involvement, of which vascular involvement is one, immune involvement is another and conceivably direct involvement of the nerves, although it's really unclear to what extent the motor and sensory neurons, and more specifically, which types actually do express the two receptors that have been linked to cellular vulnerability to COVID. So one would be direct invasion, direct infection of COVID into neurons. But you know, there's another one as well, which is just being sick and being in the ICU leaves a certain number of patients with problems sometimes related to malnutrition or lying in one place and that's another potential way but again yeah. i do want to emphasize that as of today these are the hypothetical possibilities that scientists and doctors are beginning to gear up to look for and as of now we really don't have any definitive links you mentioned ace2 ace2 is the receptor for the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. And as you alluded to, in order for 
the virus to enter a cell type, it needs to have this receptor on its surface. And a lot of the scientific effort has been going into identifying what parts of the body, what cell types express ACE2. Unsurprisingly, ACE2 has been found on the lung epithelium and the nasal epithelium. But interestingly, some of our pain colleagues have looked at the expression of ACE2 on sensory neurons. And so I was interested in this paper from the group of Theodore Price at the University of Texas in Dallas, and they published in the preprint server BioArchive on May 29th, a report where they looked at the expression of ACE2 in human dorsal root ganglion neurons. These are the sensory neurons that are involved in painful neuropathies. And interestingly, they did find ACE2 on sensory neurons, and they went a little bit further even and found that it's specifically expressed on a subset of neuron that's involved in pain and itch. So this finding underlines the fact that it's possible that the SARS-CoV-2 virus could directly infect neurons and cause neuropathy. Whether or not that's happening, we don't know. But the prerequisite is that that receptor, that kind of entry point is there. And uh, I think they've shown pretty convincingly that it is there. So it remains to be determined now whether neuropathy really happens from that. But the possibility is there based on the expression of ACE2. We'll put that in the show notes for our audience if they want to look at the paper directly. Many patients who have neuropathy are often on medications for the neuropathy, especially those who have immune-related neuropathies. They're on medications that can affect or dampen the immune system. I'm thinking corticosteroids such as prednisone. This is a typical medication that patients are on. Some can also be on intravenous immunoglobulins, IVIG, and these drugs work to dampen the immune system. Is there any concern for patients who are on immunotherapy that they might have an increased risk of either getting COVID or if they do get COVID, the severity of the disease will be more than if they were not on immunotherapy? That is a central question, but it's one that's complex because immunotherapy includes a whole host of different treatments. And so you can't make one blanket statement about immunotherapy. For instance, one of the major categories of drugs that was investigated at first was immunotherapy drugs, hydroxychloroquine, which mm -hmm. did not prove useful as a treatment. I think immunotherapy, as you correctly said, tries to dampen the immune response. For any condition, it's very hard to know when that is or is not helpful because inflammation is a double-edged sword and inflammation is the body's way of fighting back against a terrible threat. And we need inflammation in some regards to fight infection. Without immunity, you're the bubble boy and you die at the least exposure. Too much inflammation can really harm you. And I think that's the same with immunotherapy. Each patient needs to balance the pros and cons of their situation and the specific medication that's being discussed. Let's talk first about the situation. I think it's a whole different story if you already have neuropathy or any other illness and you are already taking any kind of therapy, not necessarily immunotherapy, but you know, any drug could increase your risk for COVID or the severity with which you get ill. And you have to balance, should I stop a treatment I'm on already? 
what I want to emphasize is patients should not be stopping any treatments or starting them without speaking with their own doctor because everyone's situation is so different. Everyone's risk is so different. Someone might be having a terrible life-threatening neuropathy and either no COVID, but they're worried about their risk or mild COVID or recovering from COVID. So there's no one blanket statement that can be made. Each person has got to talk with their own doctor about their risk. If they're already using immunotherapy or any medication to treat their neuropathy. Another question is what about if you're a patient who's considering immunotherapy? For instance, I had one patient who had been prescribed immunotherapy for a different condition prescribed by his oncologist and he also had neuropathy. So I discussed with the oncologist and again this was a patient who did not have COVID and an average Joe and what we decided at first to do was to postpone starting that patient on immunotherapy for his blood condition because COVID was rampant around Boston at that time. And this patient had a chronic blood condition that we didn't feel it would harm them to postpone their immunotherapy for a month. And what I learned subsequently is that the patient was seen again by their hematologist who felt the blood condition was progressing. And in the meantime, there was much less COVID around Boston. And so that patient did get started on immunotherapy. I think that's a great example of making decisions in an individualized way with the individual doctors concerned. I agree, absolutely. That's very uh, illustrative and I think good guidance for patients. Could we also talk about individual drugs that patients might be thinking about and what individual drugs risks are in a general way? Sure. We've said that we cannot give any specific medical advice for individual patients and we've told you why, but it's also important for patients to understand that each drug is in a different situation and so they should not be making blanket decisions about immunotherapy. You had mentioned at the start two specific things, which is corticosteroids and another is intravenous immunoglobulins. Although these are both immunotherapies, they work in entirely different ways. And we would expect that any potential risks related to COVID would be very different. For corticosteroids, long experience with other conditions has established that if used in a chronic way, these do increase the risk in general for infection. And it's been shown by epidemiologists that patients in the community who are immunosuppressed, whether because of drugs such as corticosteroids, other drugs, or individual immunosuppressing conditions, indeed do have increased risk of COVID. So based on what's already known, corticosteroids would be considered in general to increase risk for catching COVID or for having a more serious COVID infection if you're exposed to it. On the other hand, IVIG, which you had also mentioned, is a very different kind of a treatment that in fact is putting in immunoglobulins from other patients. And IVIG is worth mentioning because it's being used as a treatment for COVID. The blood serum from patients who've already had COVID is being very, very carefully harvested and administered to patients in a controlled setting who are having serious COVID in the hopes that antibodies in previous COVID patients' blood may in fact 
help patients either at risk or currently with COVID. There are no data yet, I, at least I haven't really seen it published, but there are theoretical reasons to think it might be helpful. That's fantastic information for our patients. So what final word would you have to patients? What one thing would you want them to take away from this? The one take home message that I think is most important for patients today is do not avoid necessary medical care. What hospitals are seeing is that there's been a real downturn in patients of all kind seeing care of all kind. And epidemiologists have noted what they call excess mortality during the time of COVID. Some of this may be undetected COVID cases, but there are ample reasons to think that some of it may be patients with complete other conditions, not COVID, who have postponed or avoided medical care because of COVID fears. That's the single most important message. If you were supposed to see a doctor, if you think you might have neuropathy, if you're a current neuropathy patient, please continue care. Every doctor I know of is making arrangements or has made arrangements for their practice to do virtual medical care. And almost all the medical insurers that I've heard of are now covering virtual medical care. You can also speak to your doctor by phone if the technology isn't in place. So the greatest risk that I know of right now for patients with neuropathy related to COVID actually concerns delay of necessary medical evaluations and treatment. No one can argue with that. So to our patients, get the care you need. Don't avoid necessary medical care on account of COVID. Dr. Oakliner, I just want to thank you for joining us in this episode of the Neuropathy Commons podcast. I want to invite our listeners to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave any feedback you have for us. We're happy to address whatever questions that you all have and topics that you want us to discuss in future episodes. We'd benefit very much from that.